Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour on your radio slash listening device thingamajiggy where we will talk all about science for the next half hour or so. Who are we? Well, I am Stu and with me on the show, as always, I have Claire and Chris. Hello. Hi. And Claire, what have you come to dazzle us with this week? I've been very lucky to see many animals in my life and to be able to, you know, write them down, check them off, put them on my bird list, put them on my mammal list. Um, And I got the special privilege of being able to do that with a very special Australian animal uh, last weekend. So that has sort of led me down a rabbit hole of why haven't I ever seen this animal before in the wild and how can we better protect waterways to protect this particular animal? Also, it's not a rabbit. It's not, it's not a rabbit. It's not a rabbit. Because you went down a rabbit hole. I was thinking, you know. (laughs) Although they do live in burrows and holes. Ah. So I don't want to reveal too much, but it has led me to um, a really quite interesting story of a river in the Blue Mountains World Heritage Area. So it's called the Wollongambi River. And the tale of community and research scientists coming together to uh, to lobby the EPA to protect that particular river from heavy metal poisoning from an upstream mine. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that and, you know, why we need better regulation of people coming together to protect our river systems. And maybe, maybe why we shouldn't have mines in World Heritage areas. Well, that's another thing. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. And Chris, what have you got for us this week? Well, I am still catching up on the big things that happened while we were on our summer break. Um, one particularly big thing that's got like all the astro people excited was, well, you know... You know the Hubble Space Telescope? You're a big fan of the Hubble Space Telescope, I'm sure, like everybody oh, is. Oh, yeah. Everyone's seen that famous Hubble photo that showed us how incredibly full of stuff the universe is. Which one? The Hubble Deep Field? Yes. <laughs> yes. But there's a lot of famous photos from the Hubble. Fantastic. Um, but there's a new telescope that's gone up. It's even bigger. The JWST. Official name is the James Webb Space Telescope. It was finally launched. It was something that everyone was talking about. Well, everyone in my kind of network was talking about in December last year. Uh, And I kind of wanted to mention it in our wrap-up of the year because it was such a big thing. But given its history, I said to wait until it actually been successfully launched because it has had many, many delays. And I just didn't want to take the chance of something going wrong. So, yeah, I want to talk about how amazing this telescope is and what it will do. Um, but, of course, I'll touch on the controversy about its time and budget blowouts, as well as the kind of bigger controversy over its name. Um, because there's a reason why people are calling it JWST rather than its full name. And, yes, I will go into that and perhaps why, you know, they should reconsider renaming this particular space telescope. Cool. Well, I'm interested to hear all about that, uh, and I hope you are too, so stay tuned.
I've been feeling pretty lucky this last couple of weeks. Um, as I said in the intro, it's mostly because I was able to tick off one of the biggest animals on my list of animals I want to see in the wild. I'm sure you can guess what it is. Lives in rivers. It's furry. It lays eggs. It's got venomous spurs. Now, you said before that you ticked off lots of birds and you ticked off lots of mammals. Yes. This is this is neither. This is a monotreme. It's the platypus, obviously. Technically, that's a mammal. It just fits within the monotreme part yeah, of mammals. Okay. Alongside marsupials and placental mammals. But I see where you're coming from. Um, have you ever seen one in the wild? I have just briefly, though. Like, yeah, it's pretty I saw brief, it and yeah. it s- swam away. Yes, yes. Just they don't stick around got, for a conversation, do they? No. no. Um, I managed to see it up in the Otways, um, a place called Lake Elizabeth. It was very magical. I'm just sort of like scooting around on the top of the water. Very, very beautiful, very cool. Um, but anyway, it got me thinking about one of my favourite subjects to talk about and think about... Yeah, obviously they live in waterways, in in burrows, Um, they lay eggs, they've got venomous spurs. Um, But it got me thinking all about sort of how to protect platypus better and what we're doing at the moment to protect our waterways, especially from uh, pollution from industry. And, you know, all waterways, they sustain incredible biodiversity, um, including the platypus. Uh, Not all of them, but some of them do. They provide humans with water, amenity, wonder, and for First Nations people, um, our connection to culture. But in so many instances, we've sort of used them like a toilet. Creeks and rivers um, are a place for industries to dump dirty water. And, you know, it's only been in the last 50 years we've had increasing sort of recognition around regulation for waterways. Um, So today I just wanted to talk about one such situation where for more than 40 years, an underground coal mine has been um, letting out really poorly treated wastewater directly into a river that you would think should be very protected. This is the Wollongambi River. And the reason it should be protected is because it's located right in the heart of the Blue Mountains. And the Blue Mountains is a World Heritage Area. Now, The government actually claimed when it made the case for making the Blue Mountains a World Heritage Area um, that there were no nearby mines that could directly impact the water catchments of, um, of the Blue Mountains. But this turned out to be very wrong um, with this particular mine actually being underground and leaking into the Wollongambi River. Um, and researchers from Western Sydney University started testing the Wollongabi River, which is a wild river uh, in the World Heritage Site, and have been testing that for around, probably since around 20, 2010 to 2014. And in 2014, they published what are fairly serious uh, implications for this river. So huge increases in the amount of nickel and zinc that they found in the river. So up to 10 times the sort of safe levels. And this was found not just at the site where the water entered, but all the way sort of 20 kilometers downstream. Um, Now, along with this sort of heavy metal poisoning, they found huge discrepancies in sort of um, insects and other invertebrates living downstream of where the mine water was coming in compared to 
the insects and invertebrates that were living upstream. So the abundance, you know, the amount of insects fell by about 90% uh, downstream of the mine and you had a drop in biodiversity. So it was around 65% lower um, where the mine was as well. And they also found this, you know, incredible buildup of contaminants in the, in the surrounding food chain, which you would imagine, you know, plants growing on the riverbeds who had uptaken, uh, you know, massive amounts of contaminants and, and contaminants and buildup in the tissue of other invertebrates like aquatic beetles. So these were pretty shocking results and the researchers, um, you know, banded together and called on the um, Environmental Protection Authority, the New South Wales arm, to put tougher regulations on the mine, which is the Clarence Colliery. And, um, you know, trying to stop them polluting so much into into this, um, this river system. Now, it took five years of the researchers um, campaigning and a huge sort of community outpouring and letter writing and all that sort of um, incredible coming together of community. But they were successful in getting the EPA to enforce a stronger regulation on the mining company. Um, and so that na- from now on, the Clarence Colliery, or you know, from when it started, which was in 2020, the Clarence Colliery was, um, you know, they were under regulation to clean the water and then keep track of exactly how many, you know, exactly what what chemicals and what heavy metals um, and exactly what the, the water clarity and the water quality was um, going into the Wollongambi River. Um, now, the same Western Sydney University scientists have now released new research. So, you know, just in 2022, detailing whether there's been a change or not since these regulations came into place. So after only a year or so of these regulations, um, they have seen quite a huge amount of ecological recovery and with the water qualities improved. And, um, you know, this is samples going all the way 20 kilometres downstream. There's been a massive reduction in zinc and nickel and um, they've been keeping an eye on that from reports from the colliery but you know what I think is quite interesting is you know the animals are starting to come back especially what they say the most pollution sensitive groups of invertebrates which I don't know if you're familiar with them but the mayflies and the stoneflies and the caddisflies are particularly susceptible to pollution and they've increased their numbers um, by over 200 percent compared to early accounts is that, is that because those species uh, spend part of their early life cycle in the water itself? So they're not just relying on the water. They actually grow mm, in the water as well. Mm. So that's probably why they're, uh, yeah. they're, you know, they're really sensitive to it anyway. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah, with this big increase in insect numbers, there will no doubt be, you know, a flow-on effect uh, and, or a downstream effect for other Uh, water birds for lizards for fish and even you know the humble platypus we can only hope Um, now this is all really good news but the researchers recognize it's sort of the start on a road to recovery and it's probably going to be a long one river sediments remain contaminated with heavy metals for up to 40 years Um, and you know zinc and nickel are heavy metals 
Uh, so they suggest to speed up the recovery to take contaminated sediment, especially around the river where the mine, uh, you know, outfalls the majority of the water. So to sort of take that out of out of the system. But I guess I just really wanted to highlight that, you know, this really is just one example of how, you know, community and scientists and government and environmental regulators can all work together and eventually lead to positive impacts, even though, you know, it's taken a long time. But realistically, I think more should be done in the prevention stage um, before it gets to this to be able to protect platypus where they are rather than trying to bring them back. It's also good to see that, you know, in this case, protecting the platypus, that the polluters got stuck with the bill. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short-range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. The science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. What so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Okay, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science, and I'm talking about the massive new space telescope that was launched on Christmas Day 2021. I don't think it was originally planned to be launched on Christmas Day, but there were some last-minute delays, and it was fitting. And <laughs> true to form. True to form, true to form. So, yeah, this is the telescope that is kind of one of the successes to the Hubble Space Telescope, which was, as I said, the introduction was launched in 1990. 
Um, so it's getting quite old, but it has told us a lot about the universe as well as given us some fantastic calendars, I think, with nice <laughs> images of galaxies and nebulae and that kind of stuff. But the important thing with this new telescope, though, is because there's some big differences, I guess. One of the big differences is that it is bigger. So we, we judge a telescope by the size of its mirror that kind of gathers the light and focuses on onto, onto one point. Now, Hubble's mirror is 2.4 metres in diameter. Uh, the JWST has a 6.5 metre diameter mirror, mm. which, um, I don't know, like if you were lucky to live in a house with, say, you know, three metre ceilings or something like that, imagine more than twice the height of the ceilings. This is a, a big mirror. This is a, a big piece of kit. Um, the other big difference with this telescope, though, is that it works mainly in the infrared. So infrared light is what it's looking at. Now, the main reason for this is because of its primary mission, which is to look at the very first stars and galaxies in the universe. So these would have been like, you know, formed out of the primordial gas. They would have been very bright, high energy, putting out ultraviolet light. But after billions of years and billions of light years, the light has been redshifted and now it is in the infrared. So you need a good infrared telescope, a very powerful infrared telescope to see it. So we don't know much about this phase of the universe. So it's very exciting to learn about what the early universe was like. Um, but an infrared telescope like this can also tell us much more. Um, for one thing, infrared light penetrates uh, interstellar dust a lot better than visible light. So you can see through things that block our view of um, of the of the universe. Um, if you ever looked at the Milky Way, it's this kind of like dusty um, ribbon across the sky. If you look at the infrared, it looks like a galaxy. It's got the bulge in the middle and everything like that, but you just can't see that if you're looking in visible light. Um, it also allows us to get a good view of exoplanets, uh, planets around other stars, and in particular see the atmospheres of them and even be able to uh, do spectroscopy and analyze their chemical structure. So hopefully find out whether any of these exoplanets are capable of hosting life. Um, but it's not just exoplanets, we can also look at um, more local things like moons of Saturn and Jupiter, um, in particular Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter, which is also a possible candidate for hosting life. So we can get a good close-up look at that and do spectroscopy on the gases that it's putting out. So yeah, some exciting things that uh, this new telescope can do. So many, so many options for this telescope. Who's directing it and as to, you know, the work that it does? Well... It's got a you know, it's going to have a very long lifetime, so a lot of people are going to be able to use it for various purposes. It's meant as kind of a as well as main missions, it's a general observatory, but it's been a big international effort. So it's it's mainly been a NASA mission, but it's uh, it was launched for instance by the European Space Agency on one of their Ariane rockets. Um, the engineering was incredible, getting this enormous mirror into a, a nose cone of a rocket and then having it unfurl safely and all work that's uh yeah the engineering is absolutely incredible and i won't go into that in too much detail not just because i don't know too much about that um i can tell you some of the physics though um please so this telescope because it works in the infrared um it does have its own special requirements so it has to be kept very cold you don't want other heat radiation getting onto it so its operating temperature is about minus 235 degrees celsius um, so Hubble Space Telescope, for instance, is just hangs out in low Earth orbit, um, whereas this one, it has to be far away from Earth's heat and light. 
Um, so it is going to sit, or it already is already there. It's sitting at a Lagrange point, which is 1.5 million kilometers from Earth. Now, Lagrange points, these are points where the gravity from the Earth and the Sun balance out. This one mm. is called Lagrange point two. It's actually outside Earth's orbit, which makes you think, how can the gravity be balancing out if it's sort of further out than the Earth? Than the Earth? But the thing is, normally when things are in like more distant orbits, you know, they go around the Sun much slower than the Earth. So this would have like a different year length to the Earth. But because it's in this sweet spot where it's from a balance, the Sun's gravity is balanced by the Earth's gravity. So it's still kind of orbiting the Sun, but it's staying in this stable position relative to the Earth, which means that it's going to be at the same distance. We can get good download speeds and upload speeds to be able to communicate with this telescope. Right. Pretty right. important then, when it's doing high resolution imaging. And then as the Earth turns, we all get to see it once and once a day, do we? Well, it's a long way away, so you're not going to see much of it. Well, you the other know thing, what though, I mean. Well, it also it does also need to be kind of hidden as well because it is kind of it's an infrared telescope. You don't want the heat from the sun getting on it, so it's got mm. this massive sun shield to protect yeah, you also, it from the sun. You know, it's pretty expensive. You don't want anyone to nick it. No, exactly, exactly. Well, it's it's actually so the it's um the mirror itself like six and a half meters um across, but it's made out of eighteen hexagonal segments of beryllium coated in gold. So, yeah, it is Very You'll see, um, not just for the bling factor, but gold apparently reflects infrared light better than something like, say, silver. So, yeah, this basically this golden hexagon floating out there, one and a half million kilometres from Earth. Um, probably won't stop some billionaire sending a thing down to get it, but you know what they're like. <laughs> so, yeah, look... Um, the fact that, like I said, it was, the engineering was very complicated. The fact that it's so far away, we can't really easily go up and fix it. I don't know if you recall, but in Hubble's early days, it actually had to go up and put some corrective lenses on it and that sort of thing. Can't do that with this one. It's just got to send out and hope everything works. And so far, so good. Um, and this complexity is one of the reasons why it has taken so long and cost so much to build. Um, so when it was being planned in the late 90s, there were estimates of costs around about the $1 billion mark, and they're aiming for a launch around 2007. But, you know, the, the date get put, push, getting pushed out, the budget kept growing, and by 2011, the, the budget was up to about $6.5 billion, and it was eating up about a quarter of the NASA budget. So it was basically eating NASA, um, and Congress nearly cancelled the project but they kind of were convinced to keep it. They actually increased the budget and they agreed to a launch date of 2018. <laughs> so, Hang on yeah. a second, that wasn't last year. Yeah, so there were further delays and their final budget is about $9.7 billion. So yeah, it's a very expensive project. A lot is riding on this particular telescope. It better do a good job. Um, but yeah, the... The other big controversy, as I alluded to, is the name of this telescope. So James Webb wasn't a scientist like Hubble was. He was an administrator of NASA during some important years of the 1960s when the agency was growing and the Apollo program was getting underway. And the name was chosen by a later NASA administrator to honour him. Um, the trouble is, though, that Webb was also implicated in the persecution of gays and lesbians in the US government. So this was kind of known, this was known as the Lavender Scare. It took place in the early days of the Cold War in the 1940s and 50s, around the time of McCarthyism, that sort of thing. Um, and Webb at the time, that time was in a high role at the State Department. Um, and so 
you know, it's not clear what his involvement is in this kind of program, but he was in a high enough role. He would have been across it. He would have had meetings with the president about it. He was briefed on all that was going on, even if he didn't actually instigate it himself. But what's even worse, though, is when he moved to NASA in the early 1960s, the practices continued. Um, so most notable was there was a, an employee, Clifford Norton, who was basically sacked but also harassed in the process he was interrogated probably unlawfully um he sued nasa over what they did to him um now again webb being the head of it wouldn't have been directly involved in this in the process but as the head he would have been responsible for the policies he was surely had to be aware of what was going on when it was something so high profile so this has led a lot of astronomers and astrophysicists to call for the telescope to be renamed um, NASA responded by saying they would conduct a historical review of the records around it. Um, they have not released the results of their review, but they said there's no case to answer. They won't be changing the name. So, look, it's right. one of those cases where, you know, it's kind of fairly familiar situation, I suppose, where we have to navigate how we deal with historical figures who were less than ideal, I suppose. I mean, science is mm. no exception to this. Yeah, I mean, that's not just dealing with a historical figure and it's commemorating them exactly, know, after exactly, the fact. Exactly. Um, I wanted to briefly mention, this is like it's something, it's something that is happening a lot. Um, I recently became aware of some really bad things about Edwin, Sch Edwin Schrodinger um, from quantum mechanics fame, who I won't go into the issues now because uh, you don't need to be subjected to that without warning. But it's a kind of thing that you go, oh, this is, this is really bad. And it makes you reflect how we honor someone like that and how we use their name. And yeah, in Webb, um, look, you're right. It's about commemorating them. It's about honoring someone and um, someone who makes many people in the community feel unwelcome in the community. <coughs> Sorry. You know, but NASA is kind of trying to say that um, to change the name would be doing an injustice to him because there's no proof that he did anything bad. But, you know, the, the name, naming it after him was actually just an arbitrary decision by a later NASA administrator. And so to pretend that they can't, you know, change it is just a bit ridiculous. You know, they basically, this guy says, I want to name it after my predecessor. It's done now. You can't rename it. Um, I mean, that's a bit, it is a bit ridiculous. Um, of course, it is. There's some practicalities. You can't like go up and write a different name on the side of the telescope, um, but you can like rename it in principle. Other missions have been renamed for different reasons, but while they're in progress, this has happened in the past. Mm, yeah. Okay. There's there's precedent there. There is precedent there, and there are other, there are some good suggestions. One of the popular suggestions is to name it after Harriet Tubman. Right. Um, which is a great idea and someone kind of more inspirational, I suppose. Um, but look, until it is renamed, if it ever is renamed, uh, many people are calling it really JWST rather than using the name James Webb. And, you know, I personally feel more comfortable with that approach. Um, it's kind of dodging the issue to some extent, but, you know, it's not possible for the community to rename it. It's, like, it's in NASA's court, really. So, yeah, and we do need to continue to use this fantastic new instrument. But look, um, the telescope said, like I said, it's going well. It recently imaged its first star. Uh, 18 points of light came from this star because there are 18 mirrors. So now they have to focus it onto one point, adjust the mirrors carefully, um, all while the telescope is gradually cooling down to its operating temperature. So it's going to be a few months before it's fully operational. Um, so a little while to go, but the major hurdles are cleared. 
all these supposed 300 individual points of failure have been passed. Wow. Um, yeah, we can hopefully look forward to some amazing science and un unpredicted discoveries in the years to come. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can send cheap tweets to us at lostinscience1 on Twitter, or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.